0: Hello and welcome to man on the Clap Orney bus sport review today i'm going to do a podcast about the impact of Covid and the European super league, the idea of the creation of when you when we had the lockdown both in you know, the United States and the United Kingdom and sort of Europe, what you had was just sport just basically disappeared overnight there was no cricket there was no Football, rugby, everything just stopped. You know, spring training stopped. You get the college basketball, Major League Baseball, there was just a yawning gap. Even golf shut down for a few months. And so there was an expectation because people, when you'd had the last sort of pandemic, the major pandemic, you could probably say SARS, but that was more of a sort of regional one, sort of a worldwide one, was you know, Spanish flu. And that was in you know 1918, 1917, that kind of era. And there were some sports, some sports you know were, were contracted, you know, baseball did in their season when the you know, 1918, Red Sox won the World Series. But there was never really a time when you'd had a disease that for an extended period of time, just stopped all forms of sport, not just professional sports, but you also had you know casual sports, you know, park football going to the gym, all of these things just suddenly disappeared overnight. And there was an expectation that people had that the first sport that would come back would then be just showered with viewers and we'd be so happy to watch something that wasn't a repeat, something that wasn't just a box set, that there would be, you know, just almost like as if it was going back to the 70s. You know, when you you just had a handful of channels, when things like Monday Night Football in America, when you had Match of the Day, when that was just... Appointment viewing and it hasn't really happened, and I think there's lots of reasons behind it. I mean, you have the obvious one you have the economic downturn, you have the inability of people to watch in sports bars, in pubs, you have people that you know don't have the money for Sky, ESPN, and so they're cable cutting. But on a more emotional level, it really underlined the importance of the sporting calendar when events are out of sync. Casual fans were either unknowing, unable, or even unwilling to participate. For example, the Masters was in autumn. It wasn't in you know, its usual slot in the spring. And it had a downturn of views. Another point is most golf fans are fairly affluent, so it wasn't a situation where you could say that there was a bunch of golf fans who didn't have jobs or you know had cut their cable and weren't able to watch. But what it was is that... The Masters in autumn looked different. In other words, some of the flowers were different. Because, you know, it's a different season. So the golf course didn't look exactly the same. There was no galleries. You know, the tea times had to be different because the light would fade. The weather was different. In the same thing, it was the same great set of golf players. You know, it was the same course... The the winner still counts the same, still gets the green jacket. It's still, you know, four days worth of golf. But for enough people, the fact is, is that it was a different Masters, meant that they just weren't able to emotionally get into it. Partly, even if you look at the Premier League in June, July, the thing is, there was water breaks, and that made perfect sense. The idea was, is that what would happen if you had a derby and it's, you know, 85 degrees it's 25 and it's burning hot middle of the day on a Saturday yeah a water break would be common sense but obviously last summer was a bit of a you know, June July was wasn't particularly hot so it looks a bit ridiculous having these kind of water breaks when it's 15 degrees overcast and drizzle and so the thing is is that tradition is a more powerful element to watching habits than we'd ever really realised. And I think what that ha- what that means is, is that the impact of a Winter World Cup that's going to be played in Qatar, it's not going to break viewership records. People are going to find that doing your Christmas shopping when England have a World Cup game is going to be weird. It's going to be weird that we're not all going to be out in the beer garden in shorts and t-shirt. We're all going to be huddled up at home and you know, you'll know you have a World Cup game on in the pub, but the pub will be decked out in Christmas decorations. It's going to be a bit strange. And some people just won't be able to get into it, and will almost be like, well, look, I'll pay a vague bit of attention to it, but actually, I'd much rather the next World Cup in you know, Mexico, Canada, and the US, which is going to be normal. It's going to be in the summer, when you know international football kind of looks its best. And so... What that comes down to then is really, the sort of the wider question. You know, how important is sports? Because really, it did help in some ways. It, you know to have just on Saturday to know that you know, for me personally to know that there was Spurs playing, to know that there was a Test match to watch, even if it wasn't quite perfect. You know, it wasn't laws. I wasn't able to go to the first day of an English Test summer. I wasn't able to go to White Hart Lane to watch the games. But having something that was live, even if it was imperfect, even if it was an empty stadium, even if it was weird playing Premier League in July, it was better than nothing. But it wasn't quite the soothing balm that I think people had hoped it would be. Because really, sports at its best, it brings together communities. Because you're marrying the power of tradition and of narrative, and sports does it, weaves it together seamlessly, perfectly, because really what you're, when you're talking about tradition, you're talking about the generational fans and families, you know, in some ways it must matter, if, you know, the, the Cubs and the Red Sox had curses, and they're, you have know, 86 years without a World Series, and all the heartbreak, you know, for the Cubs it went over 100 years, it just must matter if your great-grandfather died without seeing that the Cubs win the World Series. Your grandfather died. Your dad was, you know, spent his whole life waiting for this moment. You had all the heartbreak of 2003 and all you know, for the Red Sox being one strike away in 86. It matters that, you know, and at its deepest it signifies a permanence, which in a crisis is quite soothing. You, know, you have things such as opening day in, C- in Cincinnati, Always, you know, historically, the first game of the season was always held in Cincinnati, and even now, opening day in Cincinnati is a huge thing. You know, it, it, the fact is that only thirty thousand people watch the game in the stadium, but how many more people in the city participate? You know, casual fans, businesses get money from it. Yeah, you know, there's a sense of civic pride from it, and it doesn't really matter if the the Reds are in contention or not. It's just something. That matters. It's April, it's the start of something new, it's Cincinnati, it's always been there. And even if you're not a major baseball fan in Cincinnati, it's just nice to have something where the city sort of comes together. You know, it, and sports is able to mesh itself in our everyday lives and on our public holidays. You have things like you know, Thanksgiving football, it's always the Detroit Lions and the Dallas Cowboys play. You know, the 4th of July, you know, celebrations. People, a lot of people go to ball games. You, know, you have the Boxing Day tests in Australia, in New Zealand, in South Africa. You know Boxing Day football in England and in the UK. You know, it, for me, it's it's basically sports' version of an Open Day. It's everybody's welcome. You, know, you don't have to be the biggest fan, but if you know that on Thanksgiving after you've had your turkey, you can just sit down and watch some football. You don't really. You might not. You know, the Detroit Lions, more often than not, are not in contention. It's just something that you watch and you can get into it if you want, or just have it on in the background. You know, and the Super Bowl can do the same thing. It's once you then get the narrative and excitement. So in other words, you a pennant run. You know, with the Kansas City Royals, there was a huge amount of celebration when they won the World Series a few years ago. You know, millions of people you know, streamed into downtown Kansas City for the parade they've, just, they've won it all it is is a bunch of people on a bus driving past it's nothing particularly special in that regards but all of the years where the Royals would lose 90, 95 100 plus games just year after year of never being in contention never having a one off season where they were good yeah, for them a fantastic season would have been finishing up 500 having won just as many games as they've lost and yet People jumped on it once the royals started to get good, once you realized that there was something happening in cancer they were getting young players they had some experience with this, and it just there was some momentum. all of the love that had been there but had just been beaten out obviously by years and years of losing immediately came back. the stadium was full it was just even you know when people would go to Cancer, like you know journalists. They'd notice how everyone was wearing Royals caps, Royals t-shirt, blue. It was in the signs, you know, come on Kansas, in, in sort of shop windows. It was that amazing thing that allowed people you know, who aren't major baseball fans to come back into the fold, to get involved in the excitement of watching it every night because every night that next victory was one that was going to get you into the playoffs and then the playoffs, which is just night after night of just knife-edge action, win or go home. You know, you have the Toronto Batflip game against the Rangers. You know, for years, you know, Toronto had been in sort of third place, you know, never really been able to compete with the Yankees and the Red Sox, who were just, that was the years when the Red Sox and Yankees were guaranteed 95 wins. So how were you then going to get to 96 wins when you have £100 million less, $100 million even less, in payroll? So what you, for thought, a community to be brought together, the foundation is built on that tradition, and then the narrative, the moment, the excitement, then captures everybody. You know, sit films don't do that. They, you have amazing films, but they don't come into our daily lives. They they're not into our holidays. No one, you know, very few people think, ah, it's Fourth of July. I'll go see a film. It doesn't eat into it. You don't get a situation where everyone's walking around wearing a T-shirt of a film. That's where sports really can get into your lives, into your traditions. And what COVID showed was that even if you change that tradition ever so slightly, the whole thing just skewers. And it's not even necessarily dependent on winning. Winning does help, you know. But if you look at, you know, the Toronto game. Yeah, they won the World Series in 92 and 93, and that was a big deal but the backflip game and how the crowd you know, basically pretty much was on the verge of a riot. You know, and this is Canada. This is not a place where, you know, rioting and baseball have a you know, a rich deep tradition. And yet how important that was and then you compare it with the Miami Marlins, you know, or the you know, nay the Florida Marlins who would had won the World Series in 97 and 2003. Yet that's There's no real tradition of winning. You know, there was big support for the Marlins when they were playing at Dolphin Stadium, but they moved to a new stadium in Little Havana and it hasn't quite worked yet. They're, they're having to now build a tradition because there was no tradition. The only tradition in Miami and in the Florida, the Florida Marlins was that you'd have a fire sale and sell all your best players and trade them away the minute after you won the World Series. Which really just seems that the World Series was just a, a means to an end. It wasn't going to be a period of dominance. It was, okay, we won. You know, Let's cut costs. Let's, you know, we've made as much money as we're going to make out of this. And it made it feel more like a grift. It, the only tradition in Miami and for that team and that franchise was fire sales and bad ownership. So as a result, you know, that winning never really contributed. So in other words, really now if you look at the Derek Jeter ownership group they're having to build almost from the ground up. They're having to try and create some culture, create a tradition, something for what the Miami Marlins actually means, which means that when they do get successful, as they were last season, that that's going to then get a groundswell of support that's going to build a fan base so that you're not just going to be ha- playing to your, your 10 15,000 hardcore, that you're going to get 20 25,000. So that when you are successful on a regular basis, that then goes up to a full house, 35,000, and you start getting better you know, TV viewership. So what we're saying is, is that COVID fundamentally undermined the sporting calendar, which ate away at tradition, which is the bedroom for casual fans to participate and for communities as a whole to engage when the narrative is captivated. So in other words, when England get to course a final with a major tournament, that's when people start to really jump in. I remember going to England, Sweden, the last World Cup, and I had a friend coming down and we were going to watch it in the pub. So I just sort of ambled to the pub a bit early because my friend's coming down on the train, didn't want to be late. And suddenly, basically, the whole pub had been reserved. And it was and when you know like I was able to get a seat, and it was amazing, and all of these people, none of them were regulars in the pub, none of them would look like massive football fans, but simply, there was a World Cup quarterfinal, and they were going to be there. They wanted to be getting on the, the action, even if they weren't sports fans, even not even bar people, but they wanted to be in a bar full of people cheering in the match. when sport has been a unifier in bad times was when the tradition and the escapism, you know, serves as an elixir, you know, a short window of normality, you know, it's probably best exemplified by, you know, the Yankees and the Mets in the aftermath of 9-11, you know, the, the Mike Piazza, you know, home run at Shea Stadium, the first game back in New York City, and the Yankees run to the World Series, you know was not the biggest thing but it was just you know a step back to some form of normality it's a way of getting the emotion out it's a way of people coming together you know really if you look at the 2001 World Series really you could probably argue it outside of Arizona and Boston most of the country wanted the Yankees to win it was for symbolic reasons you know just you know, even though the Yankees have won the World Series you know so, you know, more than any other baseball team, it was a way of sort of serving to reassure us, you know, that after the healing and rebuilding, that New York City would continue on. You have the role of the sixty-eight Detroit Tigers in serving as, you know, a beacon to a shattered, fractured city in the aftermath of the riots. You know, it showed that there was something that could bring people together. You know, the team itself had a lot of local. You had some suburbanites. You were playing alongside inner-city Detroiters, you know. And that was something that the whole city could rally around when you know going down the stretch. You know that was a few months after the riots, and it was just something that people could then you know show that Detroit had pride in itself. That eventually the buildings would be rebuilt. The the, the shattered glass would be cleared away, and there would be something you know that would try and bring people together it didn't solve all of detroit's problem winning the 68 world series but it was something it was something that brought joy to people it was something that everyone could have a stake in it with covid its most damaging impact is reveal how starkly vulnerable sport is the thing is sport wasn't an elixir this time because you couldn't get away from the fact that COVID was there. It was looming over absolutely everything. It was an empty stadium, played at weird times. You know, the five thirty game on a Monday. It's just not normal in that regards. You know, in the aftermath of wars and riots and terrorism, the return of professional sports, you know, is a major signpost in a return to you know to everyday life. You know, so, if you had, you know, at, when it was at its worst, you had this nightmare situation of the, the the idea that the potential demise of the English football pyramid. I mean, it's a cataclysmic blow. You know, that entire regions could lose their clubs with hundreds of years of history could just be extinguished in a matter of months. That there was, you know, there was no simplistic way of getting around it. Okay, well maybe the Premier League will throw some money at it. Maybe the government would throw some money at it, but it really did show to people that everything that you'd taken for granted—the idea that there would be a football league, that that would have you know, seventy-two teams in it, and that you would have you know, the idea that you had ninety-two clubs—you know, twenty in the Premier League, seventy-two in the Football League—and then you know you have the conference and the idea that whole swathes of that could just Go, and that, how would you then rebuild it? You know, how would the clubs, you know, have money? You, know, you you have Brexit, you have a huge economic decline. It wouldn't be a straightforward. You know, you can lose a berry. You know that was something that had you know that was symptomatic of problems, but it was mostly the fact that they had bad owners. It wasn't necessarily a sign that the entire football league was going to collapse. You know, you had the ITV digital fiasco in the two thousands. You know, lots of clubs went into administration. Some had to, you know, get a few, had relegations. But there was some way of getting back. You know, that you weren't in a situation where you think some of these grounds might be knocked down for housing, and then well, how do you build a new stadium? That's millions of pounds. Who has millions of pounds to rebuild a football club from scratch? Especially if your area isn't wealthy. You know, in the same sense that Wimbledon, there was people with coin who were willing to put money into it. You couldn't say that for. You know, Twenty or thirty teams in the football league, in the conference, you know, in the conference South, the conference North. You know, in cricket, you had the idea that these increasing financial pressures were threatening the ability of the have-nots, so the countries that aren't England, Australia, India. You know, the, the whole. You know, you have your New Zealand, your South Africa's, your Sri Lankas, Pakistan. Is that they wouldn't be able to have five-day test matches, that it would suddenly become four-day test matches. And that you know, the damage to the emerging nations, Ireland have had test matches cancelled, one-day internationals, Holland, and the women's game. All of these entities were damaged. Yes, well, you know India were going to get through it, they had the money to, England to a lesser extent Australia, but the idea is that everyone was hurting and that there wasn't a solution out of it. There wasn't an easy way of, you know, monetizing the sport. There wasn't going to be a brand new, you know, like 2020 in the early 2000s, which helped build the sport. There is no simple solution that would basically, you know, bring all of that money back and the damage of, you know, people not playing for years. So... In some ways, the return of sports, you know, earlier this year, as I've said, it was a plus. You know, it provided a level of brightness, but it could only ever act as a facsimile to the true redemptive powers of professional sports. You know, you had random times, empty stadiums. It just highlighted the impact of COVID. You couldn't get away from COVID, whereby if you were, you know, the shock of 9-11, if you turned on you know, the ball game and it was the Mets at a packed Shea Stadium, for three hours you could get caught up in the emotion of the game, but that wasn't available here. You couldn't go to the pub and see your friends. You couldn't see your friends face-to-face and talk about the game. It was on a Zoom call. Maybe you ran into them in the street for five or ten minutes. It wasn't quite the same. You know, look at the two most powerful narratives in the post-lockdown English game. You have the promotion of Leeds back to the Premier League after you know, basically two decades out in the the hinterlands. You know, Not only the Champions, they got relegated to League One and they didn't immediately get promoted out of League One. And you had Liverpool finally winning the league. And yet it wasn't a pure celebration. We were all scared that the celebrations would lead to a community spike. Suddenly, you were like, well, actually, all those people you know, running around the city centre you know, of Leeds celebrating was actually more of a danger. You know, it wasn't just that there was a potential for a riot. There was a potential that that could lead to a lockdown, you know, a localised lockdown. You know, people could die as a result of Leeds getting promoted. You know, there was no fiver side. You, know, you couldn't talk about football at work. It, it was a strangely disconnected experience rather than a uniting one which is what that level of success should have been you know there is this looming sense of doom that permeates sport at the moment that covid is the accelerant that will lead to the mcdonaldization of sport but what i mean by mcdonaldization it's a sociological principle the idea that you know if you take the original mcdonald's which was a restaurant by two brothers and mcdonald's and, you know, one day, you know, a businessman walks in who's on, you know, travelling salesman Ray Kroc walks in and just sees the potential for it. So, basically, effectively buys the idea from them and he just, you know, commercialises it. You know, puts it across the country and then across the world. But really, the McDonald brothers themselves were, you know, quite happy just running a restaurant by the beach. And so, in the end, they have this agreement that, you know, the original McDonald's restaurant, they can just stay as it is. But Ray Kroc immediately then puts a new brand, new McDonald's next door and basically runs the map, the original brothers, out of business. It's the idea that the conformity of it. So in other words, you know, a Big Mac is the same in France as it is in Russia. is the same it is in the United States. Wherever you are in the world, your McDonald's meal would look pretty much identical. And yeah, so the idea is, is that... <laughs> You know, it, the world becomes a lot smaller, and it becomes a lot more similar. Which really brings us on to the, the European Super League. In many ways, the idea, it's always been there, but it was more a, a theory. It wasn't an idea. It was The thought process was that maybe one day you'd have a European Super League, but it was never something that, would really get off the ground you know people you know businessmen would have this idea sort of third party business people that weren't in fifa weren't in uefa would sort of throw up a a balloon and see if it would kind of float and it never really did because it was always somebody that was just looking to make some money out of it or it'd be you know it was always in relation to some form of crisis. If there was you know, arguments with the players over money, or if there was a problem with a domestic league, or you know, a giant was going through some economic trouble, there was always that thought that eventually a European Super League could make solve every, everyone's problems. At. So really, it's fundamentally a reaction to the weakness of the European hierarchy. And COVID has accelerated you know, the reveal of that. You know, at this point is that the counterpoint is is that the hierarchy are at their zenith. You you've never had a situation you know previously in Spanish football where you had so much dominance between Real and Barca. The you know, only Atletico, who are really the third, you know you argue the third biggest Spanish team, have been able to you know get even a wedge in the door. And that was really one league title. You know, a couple of Champions League finals. At which point they lost both. To Real. You know, you've had Juventus dominant. You've had PSG. You've never had a period of time... you know, Bayern's dominance. You know. The... You know. City. Chelsea. You know. You, you may to looking back to the 90s. You've never had a period of time... Where so many of the big leagues... Have been dominated by so few clubs. So really they are at their zenith. And yet why are they in trouble? Why is there even talk of a European Super League? And in many ways it's highlighted... You know, poor management practices. You know, really, the, the the fact that they've been so successful in almost, in a way, simply created an unwinnable arms race. You know, let's go through all of these teams that you might think of putting in. You know, who you'd argue would be potentially founder members. So you've got Juventus, who have been unable to win the Champions League. All of this success, all of the dominance they've had in Italy, and yet they've reached the final a couple of times, and in neither. Neither situ- neither final against you know Rao and Barça were they particularly competitive. You know, they're not consistently getting to you know semi-finals or quarterfinals. They're always just a little bit short. You know, even the signing of Ronaldo was almost a desperation sort of punt. And in many ways, Juve trying to get into a European Super League would be an admission of the weakness of Serie A that the Serie A isn't able to you know, get the players, or the standard that's high enough for Juventus or other Italian clubs to be able to be successful at that level. Which is kind of similar to PSG. You know, they are unable to win the Champions League, or they're able to build their domestic league to facilitate competing regularly in Europe. They are a big fish in a small pond. Now the point is, is that, I suppose part of the reason Qatar were has invested so much in PSG was also the chance that they thought that that would, in a way, glamorise Le Championnat. And that that would then lead to more money, stronger league, which they'd still dominate, but it would then help them when they went out into you know continental competition. And yet, if you look at the collapse of the TV deal in France, suddenly the French league is going to get a lot poorer before it gets richer. Yeah, there's some strong infrastructures here and there, but really there is no club that can compete with the fan base, with the ownership anytime soon. Yeah, you've then got you know, out in Spain, you've got Real Madrid. They're, they've been the most successful in Europe in the, sort of, the last 10, 15 years, but they've been able to, you know, they haven't been able to monetize that. They're, they're one of the biggest clubs in the world, and yet. All of that success under you know Ancelotti and and then under Zidane hasn't really led to them getting any more bigger. They are still just as big as they already are. Nor have they been able to control costs. So in other words, they still have huge amounts of you know, money into this. Yes, they've had the success, but it is you know you noticed this year they didn't make any Galactico signings. They're trying to get rid of players, not re- you know, not sign more players. There is a problem that they have, you know, institutionally, that they are leveraged, and that, the, you know, COVID has really shown that up. Okay, it's relatively bad for for Real Madrid. For Barcelona, it is twice as bad. They are an economic basket case. I mean, they have spent incompetently, you know, lavishly, incompetently. You know, they haven't spent money on their infrastructure correctly. They're, you know, the borders are a mess and you know all of this was basically to maintain Messi's competitive window and that hasn't worked and so suddenly you know with their you know whoever is next going to be you know president at barcelona is going to have a huge job on their hands then you've got Atletico, who are not able to compete domestically on a regular basis. This year might be their year where they win a league, but would that be because they've been so brilliant, or have they basically maintained the same kind of level, and that Madrid and Barcelona are in so much trouble, that they've almost won the league by by default? And that's probably me being a bit harsh, but you know, are they going to be able to compete domestically on a regular basis? You know there is a long-term question mark over what happens in the post simeone handover of power. You know, can the success last? You know, Barcelona and Rome aren't going to be economic basket cases forever. You know, when you go to Germany, you've got Bayern's problem is, you know, can their existing dominance be maintained with the domestic stranglehold they have in place? With Dortmund, can their existing operating model lead to domestic and then European success? They haven't been able to compete in Europe really since Jurgen Klopp has left. They haven't won the league. Yes, they've signed all these great young players and they sell them on for a profit, but would they ever be able to get a side good enough or keep those players long enough for them to compete with Bayern? And I don't think they've been able to provide that so far. Even with Leipzig, if you were going to put them in, how far can this brand be built if they are the perennial bridesmaids, if they are the German equivalent of the Washington Generals to Bayern's Globetrotters. And with AC and Inter, you know, you wouldn't be putting them in on the basis of their size, you'd be putting them in on their their brand. And that's where the question marks are. You know, are they going to build two new stadiums? Because the, you know the San Siro does doesn't seem to be long for this world. You know, can they reclaim their four star status? Really they're a three-star teams. They're playing a lot more in the Europa League, they're not successful in the Champions League, they haven't been, you know, really competitive against Juventus. And really they're competing with English Premier League teams and Bundesliga teams infrastructures, the youth setups, the stadiums, you know, and can either of their existing ownerships compete with that? Or are they willing to? Are they willing to, you know, sit there and spend years on the Youth system and lavishly spending on the youth system, or you know, are they just going to basically try and buy their way out, buy their way in to the European hierarchy again? And there's that's a b- big question marks. I mean, AC have done well this year, but if you look at their team, yeah, there's some nice young players, but you're still you know, to an extent reliant on Zlatan, who isn't going to be there forever. I'd be hard pressed to imagine Zlatan in the ch- the upper ends of the Champions League, so quarterfinals onwards, being able to make that much of an impact. I mean, I could well be wrong, but I think there are question marks. You know, and when you move to England, you know with United, you've got the you know, sort of Democles in terms of the debt and financial growth. If the first team continued to stagnate, you know, there's a yearly threat that they might not qualify for the Champions League. And then if they don't qualify then the sponsorship money comes down, then the finances and all the, the debt kind of rises and their ability to get new players. You know, you have to then spend even more money. I know with Arsenal, you've got the threat of irrelevance. You know, there's a widening gap, you know, even domestically between, you know, Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool, and on a sort of continental level, are they really looking to compete for the same players as Bayern, Dortmund? Even Juve, PSG, I don't think they're at that level at this point. They've spent too many years, really, in the Europa League. They're almost like a Europa League team in that regard. With Chelsea, yeah, they're successful, but you're going to need a new stadium. That's going to cost upwards of a billion, even just for a regular 60,000-seat stadium. You're going to have to go to Wembley for two or three years, which, I can say this from personal experience, isn't perfect. Whether they can compete in the long term. What if a brand which leaves or he starts to cut costs? You know, with Man City again, unable to win the Champions League. You know, or build the brand to compete with you know the historical massive teams. Your know, your know, Real, your United, Bayern, Juventus, even Liverpool, who probably out of this list are one of the more better, well run teams. It's cost control and cost certainty. You know, they're going to have to spend more money. And replacing some of their players. Do they sell some of those players off? You know, what do they struggle when Klopp eventually leaves? So really, what the European Super League is offering is power to control. You know, it's cost control. You could probably bring in something like an NFL-style salary cap. You know, you've got collective bargaining versus the players. You know, the idea that no single European league would be able to compete with you. You you would have the idea of. Uh, the, the, I suppose the underlying principle is, it's we can increase revenue, we can increase viewership, we can keep all of the money, whereby you know in the current system you have to give money to you know, the other fourteen teams in the Premier League, or you have to give t- domestically, or you know there's a t- you know a collectively bargained TV deal where I can create my own TV deal in the European Super League. And it's also a worldwide platform. So if you think of the sports watching, so that's Qatar with PSG, Abu Dhabi with Man City, and really for some of the, you know, you got limited or no relegation. So that's cost certainty, which is what you know the American owners and they're far. There's quite a few American owners on the list of teams. You know, Liverpool. It's the idea of that printed a lot of Americans investing in the Premier League who owned NFL franchises was what if my team gets relegated? What happens if we don't qualify for the Champions League whereby if you're in the NFL if you're in the Major League Baseball you've basically, you're guaranteed to make X amount of money year in, year out regardless of you know, how well the team's doing on the field. Now, all of these big teams have basically been spending money and yet so few of them have actually got much of the benefit. Juve haven't. PSG haven't. And all of these clubs are now threatened by, you know, Atalanta, Ajax, Spurs, even you know I, I mentioned RB Leipzig in there, but really they are you know wedging themselves between Bayern and Dortmund. Now you've had Villarreal who've got to a semi final a few years ago. Porto won it. Monaco. There, there are, you know Leicester City. There are so many of these very well run clubs. You know you've had RB Salzburg. There are just lots of clubs dotting around. You've had some successful, you know, Real Sociedad in Spain. That A lot of the have-nots are particularly well run in comparison with these sort of monoliths. So let's really take a step back. So what historically led to the popularity of the, the European Cup? It's a competitive ideal. It's the ultimate question. Who is to be best? You know, there's an ideal of prestige, a, a seal of approval on it. You have some element of national pride. You, you take the Ajax and Munich team of the 70s, who were really national team proxies. You have, you know, a handful of members of the national team, therefore it you know improved the national team. And in many ways, what the European Cup did which wasn't really what was maybe intended at the beginning was it was a maintenance of the existing football pyramid and arguably strengthening it it was organically grown you know, people jumped on top of it so really when you first start with the European Cup it's you know you get France Football magazine you know deciding to have this tournament because you'd had these kind of you know, I suppose really from the technology basis you had floodlights which meant you could have midweek games so in other words the European Cup never touched the weekend so they never touched the domestic game so you had all of these friendlies and the sort of notion of well who's the best team in Europe and so France Football Magazine runs this tournament and invites what they consider the best teams and then slowly but surely that then sort of ameliorates into okay we'll take every single champion from all across Europe put them into a midweek tournament and see who wins who is best so there was a powerful sense of belonging. There was an element of meritocracy to it, that you could get there. And there was an allure for the common fan. Different players, different styles of football. The idea of you know, all of these places that you've never heard of and never been to. And there was an emotional level that you had contributed. That The team that was best from your league, if they then got through to the quarters, the semis, the final, and won it, was therefore, you know, there was a reason to follow, even if it wasn't your team, there was a reason to follow, watch or support, United or Liverpool or Spurs, whoever had won the league. You You had a chance to see them on a Saturday, to beat them and to supplant them. And in some ways, on a... On another level, it was also the sense of that when you had one country having a period of dominance. So the idea of you know the concept that Serie was the best league in the world in the late eighties and early nineties, you know because of the players they were able to you know, buy, you know in the terms of the coaches. So therefore, it's almost argued that the domestic structure naturally had to be superior. So if we look at, you know, sort of the Premier League was considered sort of relatively dominant for a short period in the mid-2000s. You know, sort of culminating in United playing Chelsea in the final. And you had Liverpool do well, you had United do well, you had multiple teams. Arsenal got through to a final. And then sort of La Liga had that dominance in the 2010s. And that was even more strengthened. Because that was the platonic ideal. Is that not only were La Liga most successful in the Europa League when you had Sevilla keep on winning it, you then had Barcelona, Real, Atlético, but also you had the success of Spain in the World Cup, in the European Championship. It was a collective Spanish success. You know, it was La Liga had you. Know, it was the absolute pinnacle of the size of the clubs. You had these two massive, you know, dominant teams in Barca. Real, who had the best coaches, the best players, and it was also technically excellent. You know, Ronaldo improved when going to Real Madrid. Barca were genius in finding Messi and all of these young players, the talented players that they developed at La Masia. You know, it came down from you know, really the municipal training pitches, youth coaching, age teams. You know, tiki taka. It was you know you'd created Guardiola, the player Guardiola, the manager. Everything was just fantastic. And that was as a result, yeah. And therefore, the trophies were yours. You'd earn them. And so, yeah, even when the Premier League was successful, the idea was that the pace of play, the economic power. Yes, you know, this English club success in the seventies and eighties. They were able to outrun teams. They were able to outbattle teams, outthink teams. Yeah, European nights at Anfield. And then European Knights at you know Old Trafford in the nineties, when somehow no matter what would happen, Man would always somehow you know get two goals in the last ten minutes. So I suppose the key question then is: Does the European Super League act as the inevitable solution? In other words, the Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet solution—the idea that you'd have a world government or international rescue the idea that you know eventually the world would just unite and become one i suppose the counterpoint is is are we already there in other words you have all of these teams all across europe you know the teams i've sort of listed earlier and they're all very similar in terms of their size their stadiums their success at domestic level you know how they have the most fans and I suppose that the argument would be for an would be, let's just let the superpowers battle it out amongst themselves instead of choking the life out of their domestic leagues, and that it would really act as the it would finally supplant international football once and for all is that the level of a European super league would naturally be higher than anything that you could find in a world cup or a European championship there wouldn't be. Yeah, really any constraints yeah, you have you would offer this is what I suppose the marketing blurb would be it would be an opportunity to for football to reach new levels of excellence. but I suppose the problem is is that there wouldn't be enough competition. you, know, you wouldn't really have relegation. so once you were in there, once you had the cost certainty that you were going to make x amount per year. And you know, you have a worldwide television audience, well really what's the stop what's the difference between finishing fourth or finishing sixth? Maybe you know you don't win the whole thing, but you'd be more, you know, you'd be just competitive enough to make a profit. You you know, whereby currently at the moment if you're fifth, fourth is the champions league, fourth is the money, fourth is the opportunity to win the Champions League. But once you're there, well, if you're not going to go down then, and you're already making a profit and you're getting a full house, what's? why should you then try and spend 50 million pounds more just to get six points closer to Real or Barca, who are always going to be bigger than you? And I think that's the interesting point, is, is that all of these superpowers have become too big to fail. You know, I'm constantly talking about the fear that you know foreign owners have that their club could go down, and yet, when's the last time any of some of these huge clubs really finished in the bottom half? I mean, it's inconceivable, really. Even no matter how bad Barcelona have been this year, they don't look like they're going to finish in thirteenth this year. You know, when was the last time Barcelona, you know, played Europa League football? They just haven't done for what twenty years. I mean really even, you know, Real Madrid was probably the closest they've been, you know, nearly finishing third in that qualifying group. They were you know, they were lucky uh, to a certain extent to get a draw uh Bush Bush Munching back. But even then they still topped the group. I mean there are some positives. You know, there could be a higher level of football played, but there's no guarantees of that. There's no guarantees that you know, there wouldn't be a a handful of clubs. So let's say you put Arsenal in there, they'd be more than likely in the bottom half of a European Super League. You would still have a situation where Juventus might go five, ten years without winning anything. So I suppose for a European Super League to work, you basically need a significant base of fans to abandon or at least marginalise their domestic league to be financially viable. So we'll take the French TV deal. So a Spanish media company decide that they're going to get the rights to French football. So they put in a huge bid. Naturally, all of the French clubs who have been, you know, other than really PSG, who have been in their shadows, this is going to be a huge amount of money that's going to allow them to start competing. So in other words, instead of just being you know, basically a, a nursery league where you, know, you develop these players, but then you sell them on to France... Germany, Italy to a lesser extent and you know, La Liga, you're going to be able to start competing with you crystal palaces. You know, you'll be able not to have to sell your best player to Palace because you'll be able to offer not just the same wage, but you'll be able to say, well, we can get to the Champions League and you can live in the south of France instead of out of Croydon and be you know happy if you finish in the top 10. That kind of argument. You can see how seductive it was. But the problem was is that for that deal to succeed for the you know massive amounts of money they put in, and the fact that the French clubs hadn't done their homework, they hadn't done due diligence, they'd just taken the money, you know assuming that everything was fine, but that Spanish t v firm needed four million subscribers to basically break even and then start making a profit, and then it ended up with six hundred thousand so suddenly this t v deal was now falling apart. Canal Plus, who was the French company that originally had the rights, said, yep, we'll step in, but for much less than we were originally paying when we lost the contract at the back end of last season. So suddenly, not only have you lost the money that you were going to make, the TV money is going to be a lot less for an extended period of time. And so then it comes really down to traditions. So Would you need weekend football to capture the sort of hearts and minds? Because we've just realised that the importance of tradition of what COVID has shown, and I suppose this is where it gets to be a little bit worrying is that you know with things such as fake crowd noise, people are now very used to empty stadiums. You know, and the fact is that time slots. So the idea of the 30, 6pm kickoffs, which would then allow you to have another game on, which wouldn't go too late, and all games being televised. The thing is, those time slots are perfect for people, you know, people go to the pub, people that sit you know, at home, but for working fans, that would be a nightmare. And this is where COVID has created. And a lot of this was inevitable because of lockdowns, but you've created a rupture where the fan at home has benefited but the in-person fan has suffered. The in-person fan doesn't get to go to games, can't go to away games. Even when the fans were allowed back in, it was a couple of thousand home fans. But the pe- person who always sat at home anyway, who which is the vast majority of people who would be watching a European Super League, that's not a problem. You wouldn't go to away games if it's Turin and then the next week it's Madrid. You, know, you can go to maybe two or three handful, but you wouldn't be able to go to 15 European away games. And so what you would have is is that there'd be a limited link to the football pyramid because you're not really going to have much promotional relegation and it will you know expand the gap between the haves and have nots. I suppose what it argues is how good would the football have to be? to forestall that tradition, to make people ignore that tradition. I mean, part of the, you know, the COVID crisis, you know, was, let's say, if you look at Project Big Picture, the idea is that you would basically throw some money at the lower leagues and that you would then, you know, effectively give a payoff to the women's league. Both of those things, so, you know, throwing more money at the football pyramid, you know, the football league, that would have benefits naturally. You know, Giving the women more money for the yeah and bringing the women's super league into you know the Premier League, I can see some benefits. But the point was is that that was just window dressing. Really, it's effectively you're you know, doing some nice things, but the real significance is you're, the top six would be taking power. It's the old Rahm Emanuel statement that you basically have to use a good crisis. So in other words, yep, there's panic and these people are more likely to accept money, especially the Women's Super League and the the English Football League and the FA, because they're already financially strapped. And so that's and all that that plan would have done, the big picture, would have been to increase the financial dominance of the top six. So really, even if you had some elements of limited promotion relegation, the new arrivals will be making up the numbers. You know, really how are you you, know, you might you know, we finished Tottenham finished above Real Madrid in a Champions League group stage, but that was six games. Could you over 38 games compete with the depth of, you know, a quality Real Madrid team? You know, how could a smaller team, a non-founder member team maintain quality players long enough without being picked apart? Imagine if you stuck that great Ajax team would you be able to keep them together for two, three seasons to then get to near enough to the top of a European Super League, or would those players already be bought up? You know, how would they be able to be, you know, meaningly competitive? And I suppose one of the point is is that you have all of these teams that have been unable to win the Champions League, and in some ways are almost sort of financially stagnating. They are too dominant. You know, PSG are too dominant in France, Juventus are too dominant in Italy, and Bayern are too dominant in Germany. But how would success be measured in a European Super League? What happens when Bayern are finishing fifth every year, in, and you're no longer getting a, a guaranteed title win, a guaranteed double you know, once every two or three years? Would people be as interested, domestic fans, you know, would be filling out the Allianz every single week For a mid-table buy-in. And we just don't know. I mean, if we look historically about the creation of of major leagues. So, let's say, take Major League Baseball and NFL. And what you would have, really, was that you had the NFL. Then you had the upstart AFL and they were competing for the same players, they were you know not quite competing in the same markets, but there was that potential that they could eventually have an NFL team and an AFL team, and then you know, you're really splitting the difference. You're you know, you're splitting the city and therefore, you know, you're not gonna make as much money. And so really eventually and the same thing happened really with the National League and then you had the Upstart American League. And so what you almost had is you started out with the World Series, you then had the Super Bowl, which was basically who is to be best, which comes back, really, when we talk about the, Euro- the European Cups Foundation, is the age-old, which one is the best? Which then meant it was a lot easier to then subsume them into one overarching league. And if we look at the Champions League, yeah, the Champions League was a rebrand of the European Cup, but it maintained the trophy. Midweek European fixtures, home and away two-legged times, one or final in a neutral venue. Whatever changes there were, they were slow having a second group stage, having the second place team then the third place, then the fourth place. And there was some negative feedback when the Champions League originally had the team that finished second allowed into the tournament. The idea of it was supposed to be the Champions League, ergo, the team that was supposed to win the Champions League was supposed to be the champions. But eventually, you know, there were changes, but the reforms were slowly brought about. And yeah, there was some negative feedback, but it wasn't overwhelming. Once you were into the Champions League, you weren't going to complain about, you know, dilution of talent you were just happy to be there now if you look at the best reform examples would be you, know, you utilised the existing structure like the big bash you had all these cricket massive stadiums you know in in the cities so you had the gabby you had the wacker you had the Sydney cricket ground and you basically had state teams and what you were able to do is for the you know, the largest sort of areas, you were able to have two teams. So you could set one that would be a bit more edgier for the fans that like to go to drink at the games. And then you could have the other team that was branded, sli- you know, in the same city, branded slightly differently. If you wanted to get families so that you weren't dealing with, you know, a booze cruise kind of atmosphere and then trying to fit families. You'd almost have, you know, the family atmosphere and the booze atmosphere. And so you'd get more cricket fans. But you were still using basically the state structure, the same stadiums, you know, which made sense. So therefore, often in the Big Bash you have the state coach will be the same coach as the for the Big Bash and the players, so in other words, yeah, you know, a lot of the South Australian players will end up playing for the Adelaide strikers. It can't you know, there's a synergy between it, which makes it a lot easier to support. And yet the new European Super League would be a significant disruptor you you you're effectively destroying the separation between domestic and continental football you're mixing the two but simultaneously hermetically sealing off from the elite you're destroying the link between the football pyramid which has been such a huge part of the success of European football in other words it, European football was not guaranteed to be successful but because it fitted in to the existing structures and therefore organically grew and we became came to love it I mean for me one of the, the I think the scariest propositions is the idea that the future of fandom would be pro- player orientated rather than team orientated so in other words you have people these days that now are Kylian Mbappe supporters. Not PSG fans. In other words, when they when they fell in love with and Mbappe when he was playing for Monaco, they supported Monaco and France at international level. Then he moves to PSG. They will go where Kylian goes. They will then support PSG, watch PSG games. And then if he goes to Real, they'll become Real fans. You have a similar thing. I mean, probably one of the better examples would be Son. In other words, all right now... Tottenham are massively popular in South Korea. If he moves to Real Madrid, I imagine the vast majority of those fans will then immediately, you know, Real Madrid games will be always televised on Korean television. Yeah, there will still be a few Tottenham fans, but nowhere near as many. You know, really, they are Son fans, and because Son plays for Spurs, by proxy, they become Spurs fans. Yeah, you have that with, you know, Ronaldo, Messi, and what those sort of, Larger than life stars. And so, really, when you get to that situation, it's the player's journey to the Super League becomes the dominant narrative. So, it's basically marrying up the great players and the great teams, and that's where you get your brand synergy. So, if you let's say you love, let's say future Messi starts playing for Everton, yep, yeah, you'd love it, but you'd be looking for when future Messi leaves Everton and joins a European Super League team. Maybe it goes to Liverpool, maybe it goes to Juventus, and you would then start following Juventus obsessively. Which means that you know, there's a, a limited loyalty that the element is is that yes you're still football fans, you love football just as much as I do, but you're never going to have a situation where there will be struggle. There will be never you'll never have the pain of a relegation Because your team's never going to get relegated or your star is never going to get relegated because they will then move on to the next. And when their career ends, you you then find another superstar and you just repeat the same thing again. It's almost a little bit like the X Factor. In the end, you don't follow the person that wins the X Factor's career after they've won it because there's another series and you just follow it on. And in the end, there's no real structure it's just a means to an end it's just the same churn year after year whereby with so it's much harder to create tradition Yeah, you know, it's much harder to create you know, generational in other words you wouldn't be able to have generational Mbappe fans his career doesn't last long enough and so then suddenly you're eating away at tradition and as we've shown once you eat away at tradition once you eat away at the sporting calendar getting mass support becomes a lot harder you're dividing fans rather than uniting fans you know the the real absolute important things let's uh, let's name one english club let's just say for example sake liverpool if liverpool go into a european super league they are divorcing the english premier league while simultaneously emancipating the common english football fan you know why do english football fans you know we've already discussed and explain why english football fans would watch teams that they don't support you know, in other words me watching man united or liverpool man united man city in europe there's reasons behind it you know you have the uefa coefficient standing you know the you, it's a, these teams british football fans watch english teams you know, and watch Scottish and English fans watching Scottish teams because they're a representation of the English Premier League and English football as a whole. Once you take that away, I mean at the moment these clubs are notionally English. They have foreign owners, foreign managers, foreign players. You know, you leave the English Premier League and you shatter that notion. If the only time when Liverpool or Man United would play a Another team from this country would be another one of the big clubs in the European Super League. That's dangerous ground. you know. Yes, those clubs that would leave the English Premier League to a European Super League would be very well supported. Because I'd have millions of fans. There's still millions of fans who wouldn't be involved. Who wouldn't be invited. Who wouldn't be able to ever even dream. In other words, Tottenham fans were able to dream of getting into the Champions League. And then not just qualifying, but doing it year after year, and not just you know getting to you know getting out of the group stage, getting knocked out by the first decent team you play, but getting to the quarterfinals, the semifinals, the finals, and having that one shot in Madrid of winning it all. European Super League doesn't offer you that particularly. You know why do football fans watch league games? You know it's a sense of community. You understand the history, the narratives, the rivalries you know it's a link to the club you support you know, you don't choose the best game you choose the one that interests you the most so in other words i have the opportunity to watch bundesliga games you know i could watch you know, i can get you know serie a games la liga games but sometimes i will end up watching uh burnley versus west brom when actually theoretically i could be watching leipzig play dortmund i find german football interesting i read about it a bit but the the actual game that captures my imagination more would be Burnley versus Burnley versus West Brom because oh that's a battle for relegation or you know what would ha- yeah you know, how is Big Sam going to do against you know Sean Dyche you know, that kind of thing where you don't get that same level of emotion when you're talking about you know RB Leipzig versus Borussia Mönchengladbach it's I can understand the game I can you know, I've, I can follow the narratives but they're not deeply... I'm not deeply passionate about it. You know, like, Take a hypothetical. Would a British football fan watch a mid-table clash between Man United and Atletico Madrid as opposed to a top-of-the-table Spurs versus Everton clash? You know, I, I think a lot of the times, if you take the example of the SC United, the creation of SC United, these fans that just dropped away from Manchester United because of the Glazers taking over, the Green and Gold protests, you know, not all football fans would be on board. You know, and if those teams aren't successful in you know, if Arsenal are bottom feeders, if you know, Man United or mid table, you know, are our teams are these fans going to support them as much? You will ha- I think you will have some drop off. Especially if with a European Super League the element that you're more focused on the foreign fans, the worldwide television market than you are your domestic fans who have to turn up, who have to make the atmosphere. Are you going to get to a sort of dystopian situation where Old Trafford is half empty, but the crowd noise sounds as if it's sixty-seven thousand because you now have the technology. You know, the idea, and you know, it would really underline Man City as a sports washing you know, entity if you're now just doing it on a global basis. Even in other words, you're just as bothered by you know who's watching in Melbourne, Cairo, you know, Pune, then you are who's you know watching in East Manchester. You know, how, you know I've asked this question, you know, would there be playoffs? You know, how could the European Super League mimic domestic success? You know, Champions League success? I mean, really, if you're going to end up with a situation where you have playoffs and, you know, a Super Bowl-style, you know, final, well, why would you show much interest in the league standings? Wouldn't you just then, you know, which is where, you know, some of the success, probably one of the most successful elements of post-lockdown sports was the Europa League and Champions League playoffs. When effectively, instead of it being two legs, it was win or die. So you had literally almost, you know, it was probably the closest thing you'd have to summer. It was you know, summer, the weather was hot, you had teams playing in neutral venues. It was really the closest thing that you had that mimicked a World Cup or a European Championship. And that's what people really enjoyed. Because, you know, it was COVID short. In other words, it was a handful of teams. It was almost as if you've just walked into the last... It's been You've been on holiday and you came in the last week, two weeks, maybe the last 10 days of a World Cup. And that's what people really enjoyed. But, but whether I'd be able to watch... You know, sometimes I've, I've personally struggled with the Champions League group stages... You know, the games look good on paper, but I I find myself, unless the game's particularly riveting, it's something on, on mute and I could do something else. And it's just on in the background, whereby if it's a Premier League game, I'm more likely to have the commentary on. You know, it comes down to this, is that the big clubs can divorce the Premier League, but you're emancipating me. I don't know whether I'd be that interested in... Caring about Liverpool or Man United or Man City in a European Super League. All of those clubs become brands. They become, they're not necessarily football clubs, they become franchises. And that becomes a lot harder to get, I suppose, emotional connection. Really, does it matter which one of these super clubs wins a European Super League? Because it doesn't have any relationship if Juve win it they're not winning it for Italy they just happen to be a massive club that are based in Italy You know, at what point would you even you, you'd have potential for neutral games or going all around the world so you might and it'd be a little bit like the pre-season international champions trophy where you, know, you have Juventus playing Barcelona in Sydney and that's fine for a pre-season game but it just becomes that harder to build that tradition and that love, which is what makes football you know, one of the most popular sports on the planet. The second you start dividing fans instead of uniting them, and this is where some kind of football journalists annoy me, when they're constantly doing down on the World Cup and European that the quality of the football isn't as high as maybe the top end of the Champions League, and yes, fundamentally they're right, but that's not the point. Is that I'm not interested in football in the sense of trying to create some purely perfect ideal of football. This kind of the the, the sort of ultimate ideal Pep Guardiola that you would have just eleven central midfielders all passing to each other. The you know striving for perfection is fascinating and interesting, but actually for me, where football is challenging is when you have limitations. When you only have two weeks to pull together twenty three players, all from different clubs, you know all you know, spread across the country, spread across the world, and then get them to believe in one ethos. That's a challenge, and that fascinates me in a way that you know watching you know Man City play you know, Barcelona and they've all spent fifty million pounds on every player. Yeah, it's usually a pretty decent game, but it's not to me there's a lack of challenges. It's I don't find it as interesting in the same way that how much I've enjoyed this season with the with the success of Cadiz getting results against Barcelona and against Real Madrid, the continuing success of Ibar. There is something about domestic leagues that has its history and its traditions and its meanings that you would absolutely destroy overnight if you have a european super league sports is at its best when it has tradition when it has a history when it has some meaning so that when it brings people together when even the lowliest you know semi-professional outfit can dream of getting to the third round of the FA Cup when the team that's mid table in the Premier League can dream of winning the Premier League and can dream of playing in European football. That is so powerful and so intrinsic to sport and to football and to European football. And to destroy it just because you basically want some cost certainty and that you're scared that, you know, that you're making, yeah, that these huge clubs are making bad decisions, then then it's really, you're just turning football into a set of very highly well-played exhibitions. The European Super League, to me, is, is an exhibition league. You know, For all of the, the genius of the Harlem Globetrotters, for all of the hard work and effort that the Washington Generals teams had to do to make it competitive, to make it an aesthetically good show, in the end, that is not the height of basketball. The real height of basketball is when you have, you know, the LA Lakers, you know, facing off against the Boston Celtics. When you have the history, when the victories on both sides, that you know, sometimes those games aren't as good as the ex- exhibition, but they mean something. They are so much more meaningful, so much more of a struggle, so much more related to our past, and something that can still be maintained into the future. Stop the European Super League. Thank you for listening.